All right, great. That was an amazing setup for our next guest, who is going to be talking about his book, which is called In Pursuit of Elegance. Let me get him on the air. I'm here. Good morning, Matthew. (laughs) Do you go by Matthew or Matt? Oh, Matt's easier. Okay, great. I saw saw both used, so I, I always like to start out by asking. No, well, I am about halfway through your book, and I have to tell you, it is a fascinating read. Well, thank you. Thank it you. really is. Uh, uh, I, I had one of those weekends where I read like four books. And so, oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. And, and it was interesting, actually, how they all dovetailed together, because I started out with a book by uh, Sam Horn called Pop, where she's trying to help people, you know, come up with uh, pithy ways uh, to stand out in the crowd. Sure. But you know, coming up with the message doesn't matter if you haven't really come up with the core of that elegant offering. Yeah, yeah. You know, there are a lot of books out there on on ideas, uh, how they stick and how they spread. Um, but there aren't that many on what makes for a because uh, a, good bad ideas can stick and spread, right? So there aren't that many. <laughs> there aren't that many out there that uh, talk about well, what's a good idea in the first place. Well, and it's interesting because that was the other uh, one of the other books I read was you know what how do you deconstruct uh, you know coming up with a good idea, and I read that one just right before uh, I read your book, and so yours you know really put the icing on the cake. So. Tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, Matt, before you uh, started writing books. And I know that this isn't your first book. It's not my first book. It's actually uh, this sprang out of a previous book called The Elegant Solution. Um, and the subtitle of that was uh, Toyota's Formula for Mastering Innovation. And that gives you a little bit of insight into my background. I spent uh, nearly eight years uh, as a... Oh, how should I how should I phrase it? A captive consultant, perhaps. Right. <laughs> uh, Toyota bought all of my time for about eight years, uh, uh, and I was assigned to a pretty specific uh, project and part of Toyota, which was called the University of Toyota. And over the, that course of eight years, I had several uh, life changing experiences, breakthroughs, epiphanies, uh, what have you, that uh, allowed me to put my thoughts together uh, in a book about innovation. Uh, called The Elegant Solution, Toyota's Formula for Mastering Innovation. And unfortunately, the example, which was Toyota, upstaged the notion or the concept that I was trying to get across, which was prevalent inside that organization, which was the notion of elegance, achieving far more uh, and far better with much less. Everyone focused on Toyota. Toyota at the time was you know, uh, sort of taking over the world. Uh, and and the deeper message got obscured, and so that left me the opportunity to travel the world uh, to look for instances of times and places and people and performances and products and services and strategies where something had been subtracted and greater impact had resulted. So I sort of divorced myself from uh, Toyota and any one example and just looked for uh, anything I could find uh, irrespective of domain, that that had a subtractive quality yet far more impact because of that subtraction. And and talk a little bit about the subtraction quality because I, I found that really uh, just eye opening because you you don't really think about it in those terms. Yeah, and I'll and I'll I'll run the risk of uh, perhaps plugging a, a, a 
a gentleman by the name of Jim Collins who has a brand new book out there, and I'll probably get in trouble for doing that. But I had a sort of an epiphanal moment uh, in the middle of that that project that I had with Toyota. Uh, see, they had hired me to to help them uh, uh, transfer the kind of creativity and innovation and engagement that uh, was occurring in, of all places, the factory environment, over to the corporate environment. Um, and without going into why that hadn't happened. Um, I was struggling with exactly how to do that until I read uh, an essay uh, in USA Today, uh, the end of the year, 2003, <clears throat> by uh, Jim Collins, and it was uh, entitled, uh, This Year, A Stop Doing List. And it, it detailed how he had left uh, Stanford as a young MBA, was fast-tracking in a career at Hewlett-Packard, went back to Stanford, and one of his professors said, hey, Jim, you know, um, you may be going in the wrong direction. I'm going to give you an assignment, and the assignment is this. You've got $20 million free and clear in 10 years to live. What would you do, and specifically, what would you stop doing? And that changed his life, and it actually changed my life, too, because I realized that I had been looking at the project the wrong way. It wasn't a, what was being done. It was what was not being done. Uh, and that's the essence, I think, of the subtractive uh, nature, is sometimes what isn't there can be more powerful than what is. If you leave something missing, if you leave something open to interpretation, if you artfully and thoughtfully subtract something from the equation, um, what happens is your customers, your users, your audience will fill in the blank for themselves and it becomes all that much more powerful because they have invested their own intellectual and emotional um, equity into the equation. Got it, got it. Now, you know, the other thing that... Um you talked about, and, and again, there are four different principles in the in the book, and and we kind of jumped over symmetry, uh, you know, as the first one that you talk about in the book, and and I, I shared with you a little bit uh, last night as I was reading about this, it, it was talking about uh, this whole notion of fractals, and I shared with you kind of a, a silly little story, but every time I make anything Italian and pull out garlic, I put it in the pan, and I watch this amazing what I now know to be a fractal thing <laughs> happen with the garlic and it forms these geometric patterns um that that are just astounding and uh, you you told the story about uh, actually uh, some young painters who who discovered uh this out in nature um but but what does symmetry have to do with business uh, it has a it has a lot to do uh, with business, and let me let me backtrack and uh, pick up on what you mentioned. There. First of all, uh, elegance the way I define it and describe it, uh, I didn't really come up with. Uh, elegance is the unique combination of two things. When something is unusually simple yet surprisingly powerful, it stops us up short, and you know, as your previous uh, guest mentioned, takes our breath away. It, it sma we get a smack to the forehead, you know, and we go, oh my gosh, that's so simple but so powerful. Well, when you deconstruct that or decode that, um, I went to computer programming, um, and a gentleman by the name of Donald Knuth, um, people talked about, he's he sort of the father of computer science, talked about his programming as elegant, and he defined something um, as elegant when it is symmetrical, spare, pleasingly memorable, and has the ease and immortal ring of an E equals MC squared. I took those four 
criteria and and uh, took a little literary license with them, made them uh, alliterative, and came up with symmetry, seduction, subtraction, and sustainability. And symmetry is, um, you know, when we think when we hear the word symmetry, we think of uh, reflection in a mirror, or a starfish, or a snowflake. Uh, or an English daisy, uh, things that um, we describe as having some sort of simple pattern to them but makes for a complete whole, and it's it's pleasing to the eye. Well, symmetry really comes from mathematics, and the definition of, of symmetry is something is symmetrical if there's something you can do to it so that after you've finished doing it, it, it looks the same. Right. Well, that brings into uh, play a number of things. Um, and you mentioned fractals. Fractals are a special kind of symmetry because you can look at them at different magnifications and the pattern remains the same. And it is important in business um, because not, not necessarily because of the definition of a fractal, but because of the implications of fractals. Very, very simple rules one or two non-negotiable, self-repeating, self-repetitive, self-similar rules lead to a kind of order and organization that you could never achieve by imposing order on it superficially, which is to say sometimes if we stand back and watch as in our organizations, in our businesses, as these natural patterns occur, and we observe them and take note of them, sometimes we don't have to design all of the things that we think we need to design in order to achieve the kind of order uh, out of what seems to be chaos and complexity. And one of the stories I, I love to tell is um, the notion of the, the traffic lights and traffic controls being removed in a number of uh, high-traffic locations in the Netherlands, in the United Kingdom, um, and I'm talking 20,000-plus cars a day, not to mention yeah. bicyclists and pedestrians and lorries and, and carts and you name it. Right, uh, art, artfully designed, these intersections um, create ambiguity, uh, intrigue, and at the same time have removed all of the traditional traffic controls which seem to impose an order yet take our our minds out of the game and what they've achieved is twice twice the traffic flow and twice uh twice the safety so uh you know symmetry and and you know the notion of fractals and simple rules um prevailing have a lot to do with uh with with the design of products with how we organize uh, our our resources including people You know, it's interesting because one of the examples that you gave uh, when you were talking about that uh, recreation of the traffic patterns without all of the controls, so again, subtracting out that which previously was thought to give it, uh, you know, shape and form and and actually safety, is is that when when the lights go out in the intersection that we frequent, you know, we observe people actually, you know, thinking about one another in a way that they don't have to. So I think, you know, it's interesting when you when you take a look at the business implication of removing things that have previously, uh, you know, helped people to, you know, to think and to shape. And, and one of my favorite examples when I go into a consulting client is to tell them that for one day they actually need to put 
crime tape over the doors of all their conference rooms and not let people go in conference rooms for an entire day. And that subtractive force actually forces people to work and to talk and to visit one another in, in their offices and cubicles. So, yeah, so that's you know, my version of that. Well, 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 but that brings up an interesting point, because if you were to look at, for example, any any typical organizational chart, it is, quite frankly, symmetrical and fractal. Um, but that's not the way, if you were to spend time in that organization, the information actually flows. Right. And what we're finding out now, and, and, and the power of social networking and social media, is that information flows in ways uh, that are different than how you would construct them on a piece of paper. And trying to map those patterns leads to something that's far more beautiful and far more complex, yet works so much better uh, than what you have on a piece of paper as the typical hierarchical, uh, you know, you know, the org chart. That information just never flows that way. And in fact, if you look at org charts, where the interactions occur are in the white space. Right. Uh, people work in the white space. They don't work in those boxes that you put them in. And that's sort of another application in business of the notion of elegance. Is it's what's what's not there on the paper is where all the good stuff happens. Right. Right. So let's talk about the the second component, which is is uh, the element of seduction. Okay, all right. Um, you know the the element of seduction um, is that, gosh, you know we're 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 all in the business of of exchanging ideas, uh, and conventional wisdom would tell you that in order to be a good idea, um, it needs to be two or three things. It needs to be complete. It needs to be clear. It needs to be concrete. Uh, and that makes for a good idea, one that will stick and spread and everyone can get. Well, what if that's wrong? What if the most long-lasting, most engaging, most uh, powerful and impactful ideas really are none of those things? What if they are murky? What if they are purposefully incomplete? And... Uh, in a chapter in the book that I talk about seduction, I start with the story of the Mona Lisa, whose smile we've all been trying to figure out. Is she mocking us? Is she happy? Is she uh, sad? What exactly is it that the Mona Lisa is? And in researching um, the notion of incomplete ideas, uh, which, by the way, you know, the subtitle of the book is Why the Best Ideas Have Something Missing, I had run across a, a passage uh, by an art historian that caught my eye that uh, the Mona Lisa was painted with a technique um, by Leonardo da Vinci called sfumato, which is uh, a Latin Italian word for smoky or hazy. And I happened to be in, in, uh, in Paris um, in 2007, and I made a special trip to the Louvre and looked at her. It's a quite small painting, actually. You'll be surprised at how small she is. And, uh, you know, did a couple of trips around the museum to try and figure out exactly what the magic was because I wasn't getting, you know, from all the replications that you see in books and, and uh, you know, art posters. And I wasn't really getting the power of what uh, what he was talking about. But, but sure enough, when you see this painting in person, um, you can get two or three, even four different uh, impressions from her. 
Well, Leonardo da Vinci specifically instructed uh, people to make lines less clear and less distinct, uh, to make them purposefully hazy and ambiguous, uh, because, gosh, um, the smile is the most expressive part, uh, many people believe, of a person's face. And if you make it too concrete and too perfect, um, it, y- you take away the life factor of that, you know, the humanness of the smile, which is always changing, which you can smile, but you can communicate three or four or five different things in that smile, depending on on how you smile. And that was a launching off point for the notion of seduction, which is um, curiosity uh, depends on gaps, gaps in our knowledge. And there are various and asserted ways to create those gaps. But when we create those gaps, we as human beings are hardwired to fill in those gaps. And we become more uh, uh, linked, connected, and uh, you know, engaged in an idea or a, a product or service, even a television show, when that intrigue and ambiguity and uncertainty is there because we inject ourselves into the very idea. So that's the notion of, of seduction. Um, and you know, I, I trace in history... Uh, the notion of non-finito, which is a technique that Michelangelo, Cezanne, all kinds of artists have used over the years, which is to purposely leave something incomplete um, because the eye, uh, because of the lack of symmetry, uh, our eyes are attracted to it, and uh, we try and fill in that uh, that gap, and we're seduced by what isn't there. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, uh, the next uh, point that you mention in the book is actually the one that we, we started talking about, which, which of course, um, was the law of subtraction. And then, then the last point is all about sustainable solutions. And a lot of people use the word sustainable in, in a, a number of different ways. So why don't you help define for us what you mean by sustainability? Uh, I, I took the the broader cut at sustainability. I mean, sustainability now has has come to become synonymous with the uh, environmental notion of sustainability, um, which is an application of the concept. But but like symmetry, I think sustainability is pretty easy to define, um, but it's harder to to understand and understand its implications. Something is sustainable simply if it's something that you can. Maintain indefinitely. That's it. Uh, that's what sustainability is. That's something very easy to define, but think about what that implies. It implies a couple of things. One, uh, it implies that you can't undermine what was used to generate the idea in the first place, uh, your resources, uh, which is where the environmental aspect comes in. But the second implication gets to the heart of elegance which is achieving the maximum effect with the minimum use of resources. And that resource constraints um, uh, actually drive creativity and innovation. Uh, you know, it's, it's tough to, to imagine Sting or Paul Simon, the songwriters, saying, gosh, I can't write another hit song because I only have eight notes. Um, <laughs> you, you know, it, it's hard to imagine the great authors of the world saying, I can't write another great novel because there aren't enough uh, letters in the alphabet, um, and, and there aren't enough words. So artists uh, get the notion of sustainability, and in fact, you know, Einstein's equation, E equals mc squared, remains something that is hotly debated 
uh, 100 years plus uh, after its after its uh, development. So um, sustainability is the notion of how do you maintain something indefinitely, uh, and when that is used to drive our ideas and strategies um, and services and products, we come at the solution in a different way. Uh, we come about it in a subtractive way. How do we minimize our use of effort and time and, and energy uh, to achieve greater impact? And it's the notion of, of not adding, not necessarily acting, stopping to think, um, taking in the context of the situation. And sometimes, if we look at things from different perspectives, the solution truly is right there, and sometimes we don't have to do much of anything. So that's the notion of, of sustainability. And you know, all of the, the examples that uh, I was able to find had that quality to them. It wasn't something that was fleeting. Uh, it wasn't something that was a passing fancy. It had real uh, a real staying power to it. Now, Matt, um, are you still doing consulting? I do. I do. Uh, I work with, uh, with with a number of uh, of, of, of corporate clients, um, both individuals and teams. Um, but um, you know, while I was writing this book, I didn't. I spent most of my time uh, speaking, and that enabled me the freedom to conduct the kind of research that I wanted to. Which you know, sometimes the hardest thing to do is to get in front of people and have them spend time with you, um, see things. Uh, experience things um, all around all around the world. So for a couple of years, I actually stopped doing uh, my consulting work in order to uh, to look deeper into the concept of elegance. Well, and I, I can uh, totally understand that. I, I have had a consulting firm for 13 years, and three years ago, uh, kind of hit a brick wall with it and decided that I, I really needed to shift gears. And so high on my list of things to stop doing was uh you know the tactical e- even in the strategic consulting although i i love the the strategic consulting most and ended up building a technology company and it's funny because as i was doing all of this reading uh this week the the technology company was uh what i will call uh in its first iteration a spectacular failure and uh although failure has been the best teacher as i was reading all of these books this weekend i i couldn't help but try to you know figure out how to apply everything i was reading back to how do i resurrect that in its next iteration and i i'm actually working with toyota and and panasonic automotive right now uh on on uh, a potential way to resurrect what what we've built so it's interesting that you have that toyota connection oh, but sure. uh, i also understand stopping you know to write a book and and stopping to really do the kind of research that you need uh today is actually the last day of this show uh, for the season, and I, I decided to take a summer hiatus. So uh, it'll be interesting to go back and, and listen to all of the authors. I've done about 100 interviews since the show launched uh, on February 1st. Uh, but, wow, uh, congratulations. That, yeah, it's, been, it's really been amazing because I, I, I set out to really thoroughly understand uh, you know, what people tend to call social media. I prefer uh, the term word-of-mouth media. And understanding, uh, you know, the impact of what's going on between consumers and, uh, you know, even in the use of those tools on on a business-to-business front uh, and how that applies to all of these things people are doing. Because, you know, the the stories that you tell in this book are stories that people are talking about every day now on Twitter and Facebook and, and, you know, the dialogue that used to have to live in that formal business world 
you know, we've now subtracted that out and allowed people just to dialogue with people that they don't even know, um, you know, about really important things. Yeah, yeah, especially, you know, it's funny, um, you know, the the whole Twitter movement, if you will, uh, how fast that has uh, taken off and and uh, I caught myself, um, I started doing that back in January, uh, as as well as Facebook, um, just to see what it was all about. Right. And I'm quite addicted to that little uh, box that holds 140 characters. <laughs> right. Um, there's something elegant to that. And, you know, I was thinking the other day, um, gosh, it, it, it really quite is elegant because it's it's very simple. It's obviously very powerful because, uh, you know, gosh, when you get two million people in a, in a few months to to follow you around and stalk you, um, even if you're not saying anything, well, there's something, you know, you got to be able to use that somehow. There's something there, but the notion of of subtraction, of symmetry, you know, everybody has nothing is different um, for one person versus another. On Twitter, everyone has the very same opportunity. You've got 140 characters, that's it. doesn't matter where you are, who you are. It's not like we're, you know, like most most products and services where different markets have different iterations, different versions, you know, in the car world, for example. What is sold here in America is not what's sold in Japan or Europe. Uh, so there's a lack of symmetry uh, there, but, but Twitter is very symmetrical in that, in that respect. It's quite subtractive. Don't we find ourselves uh, editing our our letters, our thoughts, our messages <laughs> uh, far more than if we had 280 characters. Yeah, it's, it's actually interesting because your uh, the foreword of your book was written by Guy Kawasaki, and it's in 140 characters, which uh, yeah. I I actually did retweet that last night because I, it it hit me uh, as being very very powerful. And he says, "Less is the new more. Easy to learn symmetry seduction." Subtraction and sustainability. Very valuable to do. Step one, read Matt's book. <laughs> and I, I just thought that was so uh, apropos uh, to the topic of elegance uh, for that very reason. And you're, you're right. It's kind of the great equalizer. And, and you know, people are still uh, trying to learn. And, and one of the things I'm trying to tell them to do is that they need to actually slow down a little bit to go fast. And, you know, people ran into it and started blogging about their bagels and their coffee and their dog and, and didn't really think about what a powerful medium it really is. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see the evolution of, uh, of this. Is it sustainable? That's, that's the thing that's left to, uh, to be determined. Uh, I think it is, not just from a business model standpoint, because we don't know what's going to happen. You know, are they going to be able to monetize Twitter. I don't think that's a, a real concern. Um, is it is it sustainable from the, from the aspect of well, gosh, what's to stop us from going to seventy characters? Um, you know, where does it? You know, why one forty? What what what's special about that? Uh, is there a better way to do that? A way to improve it? But what's fascinating to me is is what's springing up all around the basic the basic idea. Um, and that that's the notion of 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 seduction and and subtraction actually subtraction can mean um not adding so while the basic twitter functionality remains the same what you have is all these other uh, uh you know twitter clients and services springing up all around it because it is such a simple idea and the users supply the resources and the accoutrements to the basic idea 
And if you think about it, um, it's, it's Twitter is sort of like what In-N-Out Burger does with their secret menu. Um, <laughs> they, they allow the customers to they, – they don't change their basic offering. They allow their customers to come up with, uh, with new items, and they standardize those items if they're popular into what's a, what's a secret menu, and you have to be a user to understand all those things. Same thing with Twitter. Twitter's really not changing a lot of what they do, and when they do, people get up and, you know, all up in arms. Um, but uh, those things are springing up all around them. So it's kind of a fascinating, fascinating place to be right now. Well, it is, and and it's interesting how the um, uh, you know the terminology used within Twitter, and I mean I I do it myself. I I use a product called Ping FM because it allows me to update Facebook, LinkedIn, Plaxo, and Twitter at exactly the same time with exactly the same message. But I still use the at Matt E W E May is my guest, rather than saying you know Matthew May is my guest. Right. Um, because that way when people click on it, you know, I mean, when, when they see that, they know that that's how to follow you on Twitter. So it exactly. serves to, you know, support you. And then if you use terms that you want to be picked up, you put the hash mark ahead of it. And people are doing that throughout all things, not just Twitter, which which is very, very interesting. And you're right. You know, um, it, it's it's just very interesting, the elegance that you can get uh, by simplicity. And and uh, that certainly is what Twitter has forced us into in communication. Well, Matt, um, I have really enjoyed having you on, and, and this morning's show has just been absolutely flying by for me. And I am anxious to have uh, some quiet time later tonight to uh, finish reading your book. And uh, why don't you tell folks again the name of your book and how to reach you? Well, the name of the book is In Pursuit of Elegance, Why the Best Ideas Have Something Missing. Uh, it's published by uh, Random House Broadway Business. And uh, the best way to find me is inpursuitofelegance.com. Uh, on there, you can, can link to me in any number of ways, including Twitter. I'm, I'm at Matthew E. May on Twitter. But that's probably the, the best way to do it, either Twitter or, uh, or the website, which is essentially a blog site. Right, right. And so you, you blog about uh, all things elegant, that's it, and I'm looking to uh, you know this week I'll start. Uh, last week was sort of all about the the book, um, but back to the the, the pursuit. And um, what I'd love to do is have people uh, engage in the dialogue and the hunt for uh, elegant ideas and, and solutions and strategies and services, things that are unusually simple yet surprisingly powerful in their life. Well, that is uh, that is great, and I know I'm going to jump on there. I would love to have some dialogue uh, with you about what we're uh, going to be doing with Toyota and Panasonic. Sure. Uh, just to get your uh, feedback after spending so much time uh, in in that uh, that culture. I tend to know how they think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I've learned is that it takes two years to get a memorandum of understanding signed. Oh, you know, another yeah. six months to get an MOU done. So uh, I'm not surprised that you you were uh, held captive for seven years because once they've invested that much money just in getting the paperwork done, yeah, <laughs> they gotta yeah. stick with you. <laughs> yeah, they don't. They aren't the quickest mover. You're right, but uh, gosh, they um, they sure taught me a lot about about thinking. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Matt, it has been really terrific, and I look forward to contributing to your search for elegance. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.